Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. Is it fair that people are taxed twice in their lives because they're taxed on their estates when they earn money, when they die, they're taxed again on exit? Right. Do you pay income tax? Uh, I do pay income tax. Do you buy things in shops? Yes. You're paying tax twice. Hello and welcome back to the Red Lion Pub in Westminster. I'm Christopher Hope, chopper to my pals, associate editor for politics at the Daily Telegraph. And this is Chopper's Politics Podcast. It's been a week where an artificial intelligence, WhatsApps between ministers and how to win the support from millennials has dominated the chat in Westminster. And we'll be tackling all three with Lord Crudus of Shoreditch, who wants Boris Johnson back in 10 Downing Street before the next general election, and putative Tory MP Sebastian Payne, whose new report from his onward think tank sets out the scale of the challenge facing his Conservative Party among the 25 to 40-year-old millennial generation. But first, with the threats and opportunities from artificial intelligence in the news and concerns about why we have 1 million job vacancies and 8 million economically inactive people in Britain, we thought it was high time we asked Mel Stride, Work and Pension Secretary and Rishi Sunak's campaign manager when he ran for the Tory leadership last year, back to the Red Lion pub. Mel Stride, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Good morning, Chopper. Great to have you got your mug, and you're in the Redland yeah. pub. You're you're used to this place, aren't you? You're, you're, you're well, actually, I don't here. proper. I, I have propped up the, the odd bar or two in my time, but I'm not a frequenter of this pub, actually. I've got too much work to do. I'm you're busy, aren't you? People back into work. Okay, well, about that. Um, oh, you know, how do you get more over 50s into work? The numbers are there's 650,000 people left their jobs during COVID, and we're 400,000 short of the pre-pandemic level. What do you do? Okay, so you're absolutely right. 650,000 surge as a result of COVID in what we call economically inactive people. There are over 8 million of those. And that did increase uh, during the pandemic, as it did in other countries. Now, that is coming down, not least in part of all the things that we're doing as department. The last number was 361,000. So about 40% of that has already gone back into the workforce. But if you look at the contingent parts of that, you've got the over 50s many of whom have uh, retired early, so that's an important group. You've got those who uh, have caring responsibilities, so typically parents with children. You've also got those who are receiving welfare and uh, in unemployment, etc. That's of the 8 and million then, number, of the over... That, that actually is, um, a lot of that is outside the 8 million number, actually, but I include that in the focus for the department because it's really important. And the final t- uh, one is long-term sick and disabled, which has been on an upward trend for about the last four years, starting from before the pandemic, okay. in fact. 
but nonetheless rising so how many uh, a, how many people thing. could work and aren't working okay so if you took the economically inactive you've got about eight and a half million but bear in mind that that figure has generally been much higher in the past so we've always had lots of economic inactivity and all countries do and in fact economic inactivity since 2010 has been on a downward trend and hit a historic low just before the pandemic the problem is that it then spiked up and it's been a bit sticky on the on the downward, on the trend. downward track. Do you so that's what we're bearing down on. Carers, stay-at-home mums, mums look after their parents, that kind of thing, or dads. So, so carers would be one element within that. Um, and if you look at because reason, they're helping, they keep it, they're helping by looking after the people, aren't they? Without relying on the, on anyone else to do it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. There's a great army of people caring for other people in society, and that's a huge benefit to those who are in CETA, the, the carers, etc. is one of the reasons why we have economic inactivity. But overall, I think an important contextual point here is that if the suggestion is that the UK has a higher level of economic inactivity than most other countries, that is not true. So we are below the average of the OECD, we're below the average of the EU, and the average level across the G7. But we did have this spike and we are working on bringing it down. And about 40% of that spike has now dissipated. And when will you get back to zero? That is, I can't be drawing on exact dates on that chopper. No. Uh, uh, What's your line? I'd like to get my my crystal ball out and announce (laughs) it on your podcast. In your head, Um, you've got a line going from 40% to 100%. When well, it, 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 all I can say is is that it, it, it will take a bit of time, but we are working incredibly quickly on it. We've seen a reduction even in the last quarter of 155,000. So it gives wow. you a, a sort of sense of the rate of decline that's been going on. So it is it is happening. And of course, if you look at the spring budget that we've just had recently, there were a number of labour market interventions that were announced there that I and my department have spent many months working up. And they do feed into all those groups that we've just been uh, discussing and that's what through time is well it's, it's already moving the dial but it will continue to move the dial as we go forward. and that was a, a child gas port being one of course in the budget yeah miriam cates on this podcast two weeks ago said that she she wept when that policy was announced because there's no support for stay-at-home mums what's your response to that well i i think everybody should to the greatest extent that we can give people a choice so i think you know if people want to go into work and they want to have help with their child care in order to do that and we've substantially increased the amount of money going into child care this is a 47 yes, percent big number i mean that is a huge number almost 50 percent and we've dealt with this issue particularly for those who are, who are in uc and have to find that upfront payment for the first month we've removed that problem altogether and those are things that will give people more choice so Nothing wrong with being a stay-at-home mum looking after your kids. My mum stayed at home and looked after me, and I was immensely grateful for it. But not everybody no. wants that necessarily, should be, given should, their should they be circumstances. Should they be supported by the state in some way, rewarded in, in the tax system, some more family family Well, those taxation. Ta- ta- tax matters are a matter for the <laughs> Chancellor, <laughs> actually. As you know, and as an ex-Treasury man, you, you, you know that that would be my view on that. In terms of getting more people back to work, though, work fairs, I mean, job centres, for example, if you went into a job centre now... If you're not on benefits, they can't help you. Why is that? Well, uh, job coaches, of which we have tens of thousands up and down the country, and about 650 job centres, are there to have one-on-one engagement with those who are in receipt of benefits and are therefore, and if they're able to work, therefore expected to actively look for employment and take sensible jobs when they're offered. Okay. And that is quite an intensive interaction between those people 
and the claimants. For those who are not receiving benefits, it is a different category, I think, but that doesn't mean we're not here to help and encourage. So if you were in that category, you would be looking at, for example, there are many over 50s job fairs that are organised by job centres to which those people are very welcome to go. Uh, We have a lot of online stuff, so help to work. Uh, For example, if you Google that, you'll find lots of offerings about the different jobs available. But people, aren't people, they've earned, they've worked very hard in their 50s, aren't they allowed to have time off, go to play of golf? Course. Are they selfish? Is there a moral duty? No, I, I Your don't. Your country needs no, you, Melstride? No, the way I would, I, would, uh, I would phrase it, Chopper, is that if somebody has worked very hard or for whatever reason finds themselves perfectly comfortable to live the rest of their life retired, then that is entirely a matter for them. That's an individual choice. And it's not for the state to interfere with that. But I do think there is real value in work both at the individual level we know it's good for mental health it's good for all sorts of outcomes and at the same time it's supportive of local communities because you're helping local employees who at the moment might be struggling to find people to fill vacancies and it's putting something back because of course you're paying tax and you're contributing to all the things that, that, that we get through the state so no compulsion but i think there is I think we should say that work matters and work is important and work is something that uh, for many people is a really good thing. Do you look around your pals? I mean, I think you're, uh, I won't say how old you are, but you look at, you're you're a bit older than me. Over 50. Over 50. I'm over 52. I I thought you were in your 30s. No, no. Go around there. Sorry, I'll have to check that wiki. You should be helping out your, your country paying your taxes. Do you get judgmental of your mates? No. I mean, it's interesting you should raise that, though. I do come across friends and people and I say oh what are you up to and they say oh well you know I do a bit of this and a bit of that none of it's work (laughs) and I can't help myself I always say well you know have you thought about getting a a job why don't you do a few hours a week why don't you I don't know just go and serve in the local restaurant or do something in the pub or you know you're you were an accountant why don't you do something to help a local business or something in the same way that I think we have readily in the past said, why don't you do something charitable, something in the third sector, which is great. And I think there is a similarity between... Well, there is an element of putting back when it comes to work. Well, where do you stand on, on Im- immigration? Just recently, Swella Braveman, the Home Secretary, said that she wanted more British homegrown, to use that pun, fruit pickers. And yet, this, a few days later, the government increased the numbers of foreign workers who can come and pick fruit in this country. Do you want more British fruit pickers? You're the working person. I think secretary. across the whole... Piece. What I want is us to move to much lower level of reliance on immigration. So it is too high, and the government recognises that, and we will get it down. And we've made some important announcements about the dependence of students coming over and working here. And that'll make a big difference, actually, a big number attached to that. But through time, what we've got to see is we've got to see businesses stepping up in terms of increasing productivity, investing more in the capital and machinery and stuff that's needed to make sure that we get the higher you know the higher paid jobs that people really but do you want, want but, to do but on the point and, of fruit and, pickers and my, a, well my final point of that job was going to be that to the extent that you just simply keep pulling the immigration lever to solve those kind of vacancy problems you don't get that impetus for businesses to adjust in the way that they need to adjust but on um, the point about fruit pickers fruit pickers almost define the debate don't they on this do you want to see more british fruit pickers which is what the home secretary wants well, I don't think I'll, I'm going to plunge into uh, opining on the fruit-picking sector in particular, but I think there is just that general point yeah, course, across yeah. the piece okay. that you know we, we, we do need to see uh, adjustments in our domestic productivity, yeah. etc. To, to what level of migration are you happy with? I mean, is it tens of thousands? Is it OBR, say, 250,000 for the next 10 years? That's a net migration number. 
I, I'm not going to put a, a, a figure on that other than to say that, you know, we have been very clear that I think there's 606,000 in 2022. We haven't had the 23 numbers, but they are too high. Um, now, some of that, of course, is because we've had Ukrainians and Afghans. And Hong, Hong Kong. Over, Hong Kong yeah, Hong Kong, China. So over, I think over 100,000 Ukrainians, for example, come many in my constituency. And I think this country has just been absolutely remarkable in putting an arm around those folks and of course so many of them are becoming incredibly productive which is which is very helpful to the economy i don't want to, i don't mean to quote quote back things you said in politics because people hate that oh politics. go on you will do though won't you, you you did you said this with the uk's tax burden about to increase levels not seen since the second world war you're looking at whether the uk's tax burden is too high and what can be, can be done about it that was mel stride as chairman of the treasury select committee this time last year yeah it's too high why is that so if you look at other countries and ourselves, which is a fair way of looking at it, what you will other see... Other comparable countries. Yeah, comparable countries. So if you looked at the original... Well, if you went back to when there were 14 members of the EU and looked at their average tax burdens expressed as a percentage of GDP yes. chopper... As I do all the time. You know yes. how you do this yes. on the back yes. of that I can't napkin. sleep without doing it. Yeah, exactly. You can't stop yourself, can you? It, and, and you look at how that has changed through time. Of course, it's, it's risen. And it's risen because, you know, for reasons of demography and we expect more from the state in terms of healthcare and all of those kind of things. And that's driven those, those figures up. And if you look at how we compare by comparison, we've not gone up as far, or in many cases, as fast. And if you look at where we sit in the pack internationally across the OECD for the level of the tax burden, we're not right at the tail end where we're at the very highest. In fact, we're somewhere in the middle. Mm. None of that is to say that we don't want lower taxes. We do. But at the moment, given the economic challenges we got we spent 400 billion on supporting businesses and individuals through covid do you regret, that, 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 wasn't you, do you regret that yet no i don't you don't no i don't no no someone on no. the right no no, your no, party no. do think that not at all no 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 if we had not gone in at scale and at speed to support businesses and individuals it would have been cataclysmic now as it was the economy shrunk by 10 percent almost overnight the biggest shrinkage in over 300 years. You'd have to go back to the great frost of the early 1700s to have a bigger impact. The thought of allowing, of not having come forward with furlough, for example, it would have been appalling. I mean, forget the unemployment of the 1980s up at 11 or 12%. Uh, we ended up bottoming out at about, I think, five or four or thereabouts. So that, and that, it would that, have been that was really, really, really so soon have, so about My point on taxes, you know, that's not a free lunch. You know, that's got to be repaid. And now we've had, of course, the inflationary pressures because of the, of the, war, in uh, of the war. And that is putting pressures on the public finances. It means that interest rates are rising as monetary yeah. policy is tightening. Consequences of that is that the servicing costs for our national debt are going up quite strongly. That's bearing hard on but public finances and that you know we've got to square we've got to keep the international markets lending us money and we've got to do it through being fiscally responsible and at the moment that means tax levels need to be broadly at the level there are and now the if we can get everything right and inflation down and we're going to halve it by the end of this year as you know yes well as you then, say you'll do as as we are determined to do and we are beginning to do we will be able to look at that afresh Mm. Now, that's not a matter for me. It's a matter for the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. But, you know, we, we, we can, if we get through this period, I think, have sunnier uplands fiscally mm. ahead of us. You successfully ran Rishi Sunak's campaign to be Prime Minister. So you, you ran his campaign. Is he a tax cutter? Oh, at heart, totally. Totally. But he's also a very practical man. And he's a realist. And he's very, very responsible. And he has a very high level of integrity. Now, that's why I backed him. So if you look at the campaign, 
there were many in the Al campaign that said to him, you've got to show some something. They're saying the it now, well, they're saying yeah. it now. You've got, you, well, you've got to tell the membership you're going to slash taxes left, right and centre. His response, and I remember many discussions with him about this, was, I'm not going to do that because it's irresponsible. It will lead to a bad place. Now, And he said that in, oh, in the TV debate with, with Liz yeah, Trust. Absolutely. And he knew it was a line that wasn't going to win him much support amongst the Conservative Or, or in fact, the vote. I mean, he, he lost that vote. vote. And, and he, he, he did indeed lost it. But he stayed true to what he knew to be right but that does not mean he's not a low tax conservative he most definitely is he with a passion he wants to get the tax burden down but he knows that he has to approach it all in a responsible way which is largely what maggie thatcher did actually i mean she didn't rush out to the yeah. time of high inflation in 1979 and slash all the taxes left right and center she got on top of inflation yeah. in that first term of government and then lawson came in and did all those wonderful things that we all aspire to I think Rishi had Nigel Lawson's uh, and maybe that's portrait forgotten. above his desk, didn't he? I think he, yeah, he was well, Chancellor. I think that's his. Well, Lawson fact, was his hero. I think Lawson is, 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 is above, um, and that picture has remained there above Jeremy Hunt's desk in the right. number eleven. So when I lost that's, right there. that's your lodestar for where he is on tax. I've got to ask you about inheritance, inheritance tax, which the Telegraph launched a campaign about yeah. this week. Is it fair that people are taxed twice in their lives because they're taxed on their estates when they earn money, when they die, they're taxed again on exit? Right. Do you pay income tax? Uh, I do pay income tax. Do you buy things in shops? Yes. You're paying tax twice. Right? You're paying VAT. You, you, on the, you're on paying the VAT. Okay. So the argument about double taxation is there right across. And in many cases, if you track your daily spending and what you do, you're probably being taxed seven or eight times. Yeah. Yeah, actually, it doesn't make it right. But though, it doesn't. Right? No, no, no. I, I, but I'm just making the, that specific point for, yeah. for, for, for the sake of argument. But with inheritance tax, nobody wants taxes. You know, most taxes we'd like to, we'd like to reduce. It is a matter for the chancellor. What I would say on inheritance tax is that I think it's, it's the case that only about 7%, I say only about 7%, if you're in the 7%, then that's not great news, but only about 7% actually pay it. We did substantially increase the amount that you can earn plus property or, or that can be within mm. your estate. And you can share it, you can, you got your, you can so, share it with yeah, your Yeah, so I, I think two partners plus property means a million pounds without having to pay inheritance tax. I think that takes most people's estates out of inheritance tax. But look, I'd like to see many taxes reduced. And there are some particular ones that you would, you, you would think of. What's your, what's your top five? Well, I, I think... in the pub. No one's listening well, no, now. No, nobody's listening. Well, absolutely. I listened to your last podcast, <laughs> Chopper, uh, and, and my wife said, does that mean that's doubled the audience there? And I said, <laughs> no. I said, he's very well respected and listened to it. You know, I, I think... Well, actually, I think this drifts into discussions of, of, of laffer effects within the tax system, which often people say, look, there are taxes where you could drop those taxes and get more revenue. I don't actually think there are many examples of that, but I think there are some where there are serious questions to ask. And one of them, for example, is the upper rate of capital gains tax. I think stamp duty land tax and stamp duty on property, etc. Particularly the upper levels of that may be taxes where you would have that kind of effect. But as I say, those are matters for the for the Chancellor to, to, Wait to and think see. about, not, uh, not for me. And you believe in the vision of Rishi Sunak, don't you? I mean, um, I saw some, a senior member of his team uh, recently and they said that we as journalists need to relax, R-E-L-A-X, because, and just wait to see what happens by the end of the year, the five challenges he set himself. And then, is time on his side? I mean, 
Can he do it? I, I think if anybody can do it, he can do it. The jury is clearly out as to the result of the next general election, even to the extent that I think most people are kind of sensing a hung parliament, you know. And what I think is interesting... With, with Labour's biggest party, probably. Well, well, may, may, maybe. But, but, but I think, you know, if, if I was Labour, I, I certainly wouldn't be wanting to hear people suggesting that to me. I should be in a position at this, this stage where I'm saying, well, I'm nailed on to win, not who am I going to do, do a deal with if I become the largest party. But look, I think the path through is pretty narrow but I think there is definitely a path through for us to win an overall majority but what we've got to do first and foremost is deliver on the five missions that the Prime Minister has set out and I think if we can do that and we'll know roughly by the end of the year how that's doing then I think we've really hopefully earned a really serious second look uh, and hearing from the British public and I think then we can probably be in a position to set out a number of other things about what the future will look like but at the moment there's a lot to be done in getting inflation down getting the debt down um getting the deficit with down. the legacy of covid yeah, and getting the national health service backlogs down and, and stopping the boats these are things that matter on the doorstep yeah. and that's where we're firmly focused your work in pension secretary with the emphasis on work do you worry about ai is it a nuclear threat is, is existential threat to the human race it's a double-edged sword and it's cloaked with uncertainty isn't it so the reason why i think the government quite rightly is looking at the downsides or risks of AI is that across the spectrum of possible outcomes over the foreseeable future is a slice of that spectrum that is deeply dark, right? And people are even talking about the extermination of the, of the, the yeah. human race and so on. So Senior people are saying even that, if you, Yeah, so if you have potentially cataclysmic outcomes, even if there's a low probability or expectation of them occurring, you have to take them seriously. And that's why we are looking at regulation, why we are seeking international approaches to that. Guardrails is the But look, answers. within DWP, there are a huge number of opportunities here. Now, one of them is choking off fraud, because what AI could be very good at is looking at large data sets and finding patterns and finding, therefore, criminal gangs, for example, that are exploiting our system. And I'll give you one example of how our data analytics are already doing that. So we were able to identify that in Sheffield, for example, there were three postcode areas where there was an inordinately high level of application, successful application, actually, for various kind of benefits as a consequence of that. And literally streets within those postcodes were, there, were really high levels of uh, uh, successful applications. As a consequence of that, we unraveled uh, a gang that were exploiting the that's system. Br- that's brilliant, so, because fraud you know, is huge. I you, mean, you fraud can, is huge. It's coming down. On my watch, Chopper, it's coming down. Because it hasn't and for a while. It hasn't. It's coming down. The last figures were that it, it, it has what, fallen. What, can AI halve it? Can it, can it cut it by a third, well, a we, quarter? What are your numbers? We will be announcing very shortly, actually, a, a target for getting fraud down. But we haven't quite announced it yet, so I'm, I can't quite answer that question. But there is no doubt that it can make a huge impact. You could look at other benefits, so a carer's allowance, where you're caring for somebody 35 hours a week, and they're going to, how far away, for example, would be an interesting question, do you live from the person that you're caring for? If it's a very large distance away, I think that brings into question the practicalities of caring for them for 35 hours a week. And sorting the data and going through data can find those kind of possibilities and really target what we so there's huge so, benefits there, so there's a but big there's also potential. Dark, dark risks. But there's also, you, you know, within job centres, you know, when, when a job coach, a work coach sits down with somebody and tries to work out what the next best thing for them to do is. Now, that could be to apply to certain employers. It could be to come back tomorrow to see them or come back next week to see them. If you've got artificial intelligence involved in that, and by saying this, I'm not saying this is happening no. at all at no. the moment, but you're casting forward no. some years... 
you could have AI actually working out the very best thing that that work coach could recommend to that claimant to maximize the chance of them going into work. That's hugely exciting because that could mean a lot of lives transformed by getting great jobs. Listen, Mel Stride, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you for being, giving us some frank answers. Thank you. Thanks, Chopper. Right, do stay with us, listeners. Right, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, Lord Crudders, Peter Crudders, on the continued, as he sees it, stitch-up of Boris Johnson. And we speak to Sebastian Payne, a veteran of Westminster, on why millennials are turned off from his Tory party. Right after this... Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. And we're back. Now, a man who's been around the political block almost as much as I have is Sebastian Payne, a former journalist with The Telegraph and The Financial Times, an author of two books, and now the head of Onward, a centre-right think tank. Now, Onward has published a new report this week titled The Missing Millennials. These are 25 to 40-year-olds who have grown up under consecutive Tory governments and are a bit, well, fed up about the opportunities open to them. To unpack its findings and to give sense to what's going on, Seb joined me in the pub this week. Sebastian Payne, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. What are millennials? So millennials are a cohort, a generational cohort of 25 to 40-year-olds. They were born in the 1980s and 1990s, and the name comes that it runs up to the year 2000, the millennium. And they're quite a unique generation because, first of all, a lot of them entered the workplace after the financial crash. A lot of them have only worked under conservative rule that when Labour was last in power, many of them were in education or at university. So they're quite a hard-nosed generation in some respects, but if you look at their kind of preferences uh, they are sort of less liberal than generation Z which is below them which is 18 to 24 year olds and a bit more liberal than generation X which comes above them so they're less liberal than older the people is that right no they're less liberal than the younger the people uh, more liberal than the older ones is that not natural because if Tory, if if people change from being Labour voters to Tory voters age 47, then you aren't you just tracking what happens anyway, this trend towards being more conservative the older you get? Now, that trend starts normally quite early in life. So if we look back at previous generations, going all the way back to the silent generation, which were those born after the Second World War, they do start to get more conservative as they 
buy a house, have a family, get their first stable job. But the research we've done at Onward shows that, in fact, that this is not happening with millennials, that actually, as they're getting older, they're becoming more left-wing. And I think you can look at the reasons for that, which is they're struggling to buy houses. Childcare costs means they're putting off families. And generally, when they look at society, they just feel they're not getting that stake in it, which normally makes people more conservative. So the research we've done this week, the missing millennials, we're trying to say that the conservatives need to do something about this now because if they don't in 5 10 15 years time there'll be no core voting base left because millennials are already the biggest majority in 21% of seats so your millennials pledge card says what five things First of all, we obviously need to deal with the cost of living crisis. And I think what they want on that is the same as the rest of the population. The tax burden needs to be tackled. Inflation. Cut taxes. This is one thing we found really interesting, Chris. Yes, because what we found is that even though on the surface, millennials might look as if they're economically left wing, you know, they talk about equality and fairness. But if you ask them, do you think you should have more money or you should give money to the government to redistribute it? They actually favour lower taxes. So if you think back to, we've adopted this, if you think back to the early 90s and the, the shy Tory thing, we said they're actually shy capitalists, that if you dig into their views, they do believe in lower taxes and they do believe government should not like be money. Sounds like they believe in the magic money tree. They don't believe because in the magic want, money tree. they want less taxes and they want more good things happening to other people. Well, obviously so does everyone in <laughs> some respects. I mean. I mean, but Corbyn, the Corbyn omics. Not quite, because you've all got to make choices in politics about how much you cut, how much you spend. But I think, first of all, the cost of living crisis is the first thing you have to do the second thing of course is house building the fact is we need to build more houses we've had several attempts at planning reforms it's got to be done in a way that is sustainable with the consent of local people but fundamentally we just need to get more houses and, and built. the government surrendered on that so far well i think white flag time well we still haven't seen the final plans from the government yet on planning reforms i think are coming later this year which are long awaited but ultimately you don't just have to do that there's lots of other things you can do to get more houses built you can build up density in urban areas you can use transport to try and build new houses on infrastructure so what I think we at Onward want to see and we've actually got some work coming out in June on this is more creativity about building houses because yes you know with the planning system does need looking at but there's things you can do now and the third how thing cre- how is- creative gingerbread houses <laughs> Um, obviously, what, made from wood. We all, we, well, we all love beautiful houses that are built in a very That's nice the point, way. Though. Beautiful houses is the point, isn't it? Exactly. But you can do though. You can build houses in a good, beautiful way. And I think that the government's commission that they did on this, which is called Building Beautiful, has some good guidelines that I'm sure millennials would love. So those are those are two things third thing is the environment. Now, this is actually matters to people across the board. And there are some people obviously in, uh, in the Conservative Party who raise their eyebrows about net zero. Actually, this is ratcheting up um, the concerns for people across the board about the environment. They can see the effects of climate change. They do want net zero delivered, but obviously done in a sensible way. The other things that need to be looked at as well, of course, is childcare. The government did its big, bold yeah. offer on that. I think there's a case you might want to look at going further on that. And I'm sure that's being considered. Yeah. Um, and if you put all okay. that together, you can see a message that it won't be quick or easy to turn around because, let's be very honest, in Onwards Research, they don't like the Conservative Party that much. But if you get the policy well, what right... Are the numbers there? They, they, they don't, do they? Only 21% of millennials would vote Tory in an election tomorrow. 31% think they're dishonest. 24% think they're incompetent and out of touch. That's quite damning after 13 years of a government. 
It is, and again, changing that's not going to be quick or easy, but there are these two silver linings. One is the shy catalyst thing. I think if you get the message right, that will change people's perceptions. The second is the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, that when we looked at the numbers for this, amongst 30 to 40-year-olds, Mr Sunak has a 25-point lead over the Tory party. Amongst 25 to 30-year-olds, it's 20 points. Now, he's not quite the first millennial Prime Minister, but he's, he's on the cusp of that. He's 43 years old, so he's outside of your, your number. Just about, but as with all these things in politics, some of it's about the atmospherics, the vibes, if you will. And I think you can see an opportunity that if you get the message right, that he could actually appeal to some of those millennials. And there's actually a very good column in The Telegraph by Ed Cumming today about this. So essentially, millennials see Sunak as one of them. I think they do. I mean, a very rich one of them, but one of them. Exactly. But they do also need to look at the fact about what kind of policies he's doing. Because as I said, you know, they might have positive feelings towards the Prime Minister, but they don't towards the Conservative Party and they don't feel the policy offering is quite what it wants to be. So I think, you know, at this particular point, Mr Sunak's been Prime Minister for six months or so at the moment. They've got back from the worst part of where things were under the Liz Truss government, but at some point, it does need to be a big boulder. It needs some bigger ideas. We've seen nothing yet on on a bold vision. We've seen five ambitions in January and that's it. And that's why many Tories tell me they're concerned about lack of vision from this government. And I think that's something that is going to need to be tackled. And we've argued it onward that you can't pull things back at the next election for the Conservatives by just managerialism. And I actually think people in Downing Street do know that at the moment there's still a backlog, shall we say, of issues from a couple of previous prime ministers they're trying to get through. But at some point, yeah, I agree with you, Chris. It's got to be bigger and it's got to be bolder. senior aide to the PM said to me, we need to R-E-L-A-X, relax and not worry about the polls. That's people who might support the Tory government. And I was, I'm not sure that's how the modern media works. How old are you, Seb? I'm 33. You're right in the middle of this millennial generation. Why on earth do you want to be a Tory MP, given so few of your mates like the Tories? Well, I'm not so you don't know all my mates, Chris, so you don't know exactly. <laughs> well, what you're, you're cohorts. You're not your mates, and you're people of your age. Unless you have older people who are your friends, I don't know. Well, look, my view on this, Chris, is that I've had a great time in political journalism, of course, and we worked together 12 years ago at the Daily Telegraph, Telegraph yeah, um, the, yeah. the glory days of my you're life. Much, much, you still are much missed, Seb <laughs> And at that point, I've done about 12 years looking and observing politics, and I think that you know it's something I really do deeply care about. I've written two books about yeah. politics, and I think I've always had this ambition to sort of maybe get off the touchline and onto the pitch slightly, and this felt like the right time for me. And as we've talked about just now, there are some big challenges for not just my generation, but all generations and the country. And so I'm just really excited to get stuck in and seeing if, you know, we can try and do something to tackle them. But what are you, let's say, not your, but your, people of, you, of your age don't like the Tories, but why do you like the Tories? So my political background, as I wrote about in my book, Broken Heartlands in the Red War, was growing up in Gateshead, a town that often fall into the left behind category and you know I grew up through 13 years of Labour rule all I remembered was Labour MPs, Labour councillors and things didn't fundamentally change for my family and the people I grew up with there and so when I started becoming politically sentient shall we say and being aware of the issues and thinking about it it felt to me as if actually it was the Conservatives who had the right idea in terms of taking power 
closer to people in terms of trying to allow people to have more of their money, allowing people to have more personal freedom. So that set a very clear set of ideas and ambitions. And as I said, through my career at the Daily Telegraph, the Spectator and the Financial Times and now onward, you know, obviously when you're a journalist, you have values and I'm sure you have values too, Chris. I've tried to promote some of them. But now when I left the FT at the end of last year to go to onward, I think we've done a lot of work to promote those things forward. And I'll be keeping doing that all the way into the future. And if I'm fortunate enough to be selected for parliamentary constituency, then I'll try and do the same in the House of Commons. And you're, you're looking, you're hoping to win Selby or to replace Nigel Adams there, aren't you? And that's a big majority. So if you, if you get on the shortlist there or even selected, you've got a big chance. Well, I'm thrilled that the Selby Association has shortlisted me and I'm really looking forward to the process over the coming weeks or so. But, uh, you know, if I am fortunate enough to be selected, I don't think you can take anything in granted for politics right now. Will you be advising the party on its manifesto? Well, I think the manifesto process is not exactly clear at the moment. Because obviously, yet. I don't think so. Because don't forget, the 2017 and 2019 elections were snap elections. They had to be written very quickly. And when it comes to the next election, we roughly know it's going to be probably later next year when it happens. And when we sort of get to that point, I'm sure there'll be a process where think tanks and MPs and people from the wider Conservative Party can feed into it. So it's a document that yeah. brings all those things together. But Onward has some very clear ambitions and ideas we want to get into there and we'll be making our case. Have politicians forgiven you for your journalism? Now you're going to be a politician. Have you said sorry to anyone yet? I've not said sorry to anyone for any journalism I've ever done and I don't (laughs) intend to because I think following in the good steps of Christopher Hope, I've always tried to be a straight shooter and tell it like it is. Absolutely. If I can give you one idea to be a Tory MP, you must support the campaign for a new Royal Yacht Britannia, a replacement for this glorious vessel which was shamefully decommissioned by Labour in October 1997. Will you support that, Seb Payne, yes or no? I honestly haven't thought too much about the Royal Yacht, Chris. I'm going to have to come back to you on that one. But <laughs> You're I have visited, Seb Payne. Um, I visited the original Royal Yacht Britannia in Edinburgh, and I can say in the dry dock, it's a fantastic thing, and I think it's a very noble campaign you're fighting. <laughs> well, Seb Payne, best of luck in your political ambition, and it's a great report this on the millennials. Let's hope people in power read it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Chris. Sebastian Payne there. Now, some questions have haunted us since the dawn of time. What's the meaning of life? If a tree falls in the middle of the woods and no one's there to hear it, will Extinction Rebellion still care? And will Boris Johnson ever make a political comeback? Again. One man who's no stranger to answering the last question is Peter Cruddus, Lord Cruddus of Shoreditch. He's of the firm belief that the former Prime Minister was stitched up and he needs to be back in number 10. Peter Cruddus, welcome back to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah, you like being in Red Lamp, don't you? You're, uh, not, you're a political <laughs> well, person now. Yeah, I guess I am, yeah. Try right, not to When be. I first spoke to you, you were, you were a big wheel in the city and now you're all you know, you yeah. your time down here. Yeah, well, you get dragged into politics. I mean, I got dragged in through... I was a co-founder of Vote Leave. And, of course uh, you were, yeah, yeah. You know, fought the Brexit campaign, the referendum, became Conservative Party treasurer. And you kind of... I mean, you, you do get dragged into politics. You've got to be interested in politics. Yeah. But for me, it started when I created my own charitable foundation and then started meeting different people and then went to the prince's trust events and met the prime minister and so on which Um, one which prime minister david cameron yes but let's talk about a different leader boris johnson will he ever lead your party again i don't think it's a question of who leads our party it's the process 
of appointing a leader. I mean, I've got this campaign group, Conservative Democratic Organisation, and what we're about is the democratic process of appointing our leader. Today, we have somebody that was rejected by quite large numbers by the members of the Conservative Party. They elected Boris Johnson, they elected Liz Truss, and now we have Rishi Sunak. So whether Boris comes back or not, it's up to the members. It should be up to the members, and that's the point, really. Personally, I'd like to see Boris back. I mean, he's a brilliant campaigner. 20 years, you know, you think he won two mayoral elections, the Brexit vote and an 80-seat majority at the last general election. He hasn't lost, With, an, hasn't lost an election yet, has he? He hasn't, no. So, you know, if, 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 he, if I was in business, I'd want to employ this guy. Well, and people are hiring him to make speeches for himself, well, but not, good really, luck to, not him. to help the Tory party. Yeah, moment. well, they don't hire him because they like him. They hire him because he's successful and they want to hear what he's got to say. Should he be come back before the election, Peter Cruddis, as leader? Um, as leader? Well, look, I, I think what we need to do is to restore democracy in the Conservative Party and respect the 2019 manifesto. So for, for that reason, I think he should come back because he was elected. It was his manifesto. And, you know, he was leader of the uh, Brexit campaign. There was a personal mandate behind that number. He got, he got a big mandate. Yeah, I think he should come back to finish the job. But I think he has a sense of, you know, unfinished business. We really have a dysfunctional leader that seems to be reversing the 2019 manifesto. And who, who gave him the mandate to do that? Which measures is he reversing? Well, if you look at the Windsor Agreement, there's so many, I mean, the repeal of the European laws uh, but the Windsor framework effectively leaves Northern Ireland inside the European Union the trade agreements between the North and South have to come under European law and, and the uh, UK there's, there's, a, there's, there's well, dual we, control over that yeah, territory and, well in theory but I mean there's that Windsor break that we can pull but I mean doesn't seem to be an appetite and what what it looks like to me is that the Conservative Party have been taken over by Remain Europhile people that want a, a very soft Brexit which is not what you know the referendum was all about we wanted a hard Brexit take control of our borders is that fair though what they wanted was a Brexit or what the campaigners wanted was a Brexit but it wasn't defined was it well, I think because it Brexit was. meant Brexit we for gonna, two years and no one knew what that meant. Well, we were going to control... Well, that's because uh, we never got a Brexit Prime Minister. Once again, we had an unelected Prime Minister in Theresa May and that was turmoil for a long period of time. I mean, all those people that worked uh, for Vote Leave knew exactly what Brexit was. And I remember Michael Gove going on the Andrew Marr show saying, that, you know, what it means is taking back control of our borders taking back control of our laws, repealing the laws, and leaving the single market. I, my prediction is within two or three years, depending on the result of the next general election. The reason why Rishi Sunak is Prime Minister is because Liz Truss messed it up. At the time, there was a panic in the party. They thought, let's get someone who can calm the markets. That's why Sunak came in without a vote from members. Yes. You'd accept that? Well, I think the panic... And that's, was, why, that's why he's where he is now. Look, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories going on. If you look at the beneficiaries of the turmoil that was created, you know, it was a self-fulfilling turmoil. So, you know, it looked like it was engineered 
all the way along. And what, um, by Remainers, by blob, by the blob. Well, by, I think by, by a cabal of Conservative MPs, and the Conservative Party has been engineered over the last sort of five, ten years, really since David Cameron, to bring in sort of wets and slightly left leaning. I think the Conservative Party today is a centre left party. And there's no mandate for that. You know, the the 2019 election was a centre-right manifesto. And anyway, who gives them the right to do that? I mean, they've just completely commandeered the party and it's got to stop. Otherwise, if you look at the success of the Conservative Party, over 100 years, they've won 70% of general elections on centre-right manifestos, on centre-right policies. I mean, they won unexpectedly when David Cameron said, we want to have a referendum on the EU within the manifesto and uh, back in 2015 and um, he won that general and election. Do you, and do you, following on from that to, to just most recently with Boris Johnson and the two police investigations into Partygate, do you see... Nonsense. Absolute mm. nonsense. Well, we I don't, mean, we don't know it's nonsense, do we? We, we? Well, of course, it's all part of the same stitch-up. But it seems to me that they're completely trying to destroy Boris's political career. But why would they do that? We're all meant to be conservatives. We're all meant to support each other. This is an ex-prime minister that won a massive majority. I think Rishi Sunak should be focusing on the Sue Gray report and, um, and the relationship between her and Starmer. Yet we're still hearing about Boris. Mm. You asked the electorate, if you put Boris... Uh, as leader of the party, I think he'd win the next election. And the, the electorate can see right the way through this what's going on. People have to get outside the Westminster bubble. Whoever the leader is, I don't think they can win the next election unless the members are behind them. And how do you engineer Even that? Boris. Do you have a, a confirmatory vote on Mrs Sunak's leadership? Or what yes, do you do? I think so. I think what we could do is have a confirmatory vote on Boris's resignation and Sunak's leadership. Why don't we do that? That would be this summer ahead, ahead of the Yeah, why not? It's not too late. We've got a year to the next general election. It's not as if we are way ahead in the polls and Rishi's doing a, a great job uh, around the country. I mean, I saw that photo the other day in his local constituency and the body language of the people. I think you tweeted the picture. Well, they uh, looked quite terrible. sad, didn't they? Yeah, they didn't look happy at all. We and didn't know why. Ha- we, we may be in the wrong moment, but for all those 10 yeah, people I mean, to I don't so want miserable. to be unfair to Rishi, but, um, you know, and it's not personal to him. I just don't like what's happening to our party and the way policies are being so reversed. It's almost time that Mr Sinek reached out to the members because they haven't been part of the conversation no. since he was made or appointed to the position of Prime Minister by MPs. I guess it defines what you mean by reaching out. He may well think that he is reaching out but he's not i mean we are in close contact with the members when boris was constructively dismissed a year ago in the summer last year we put a campaign together to give the members a confirmatory vote on boris's resignation and how many uh, signed that again well twelve thousand. No, no there was there was around twenty thousand, and we only needed ten thousand votes which we sent into CCA According to the Constitution. You, you, yeah. so, so, why, so why haven't you got your way then? The whole thing seemed to be delayed. We've never, we actually have forced a convention meeting, but I haven't heard any more. When is the meeting? You tell me. You know, I mean, we've had changes of chairman. I mean, it just gets kicked into the long grass. That's the contempt that this leadership holds the members in. It's it's unacceptable, and the sooner the members have a bigger say in the running of the party. 
Just but, but back to Boris Johnson, what will he do at the next election? Will he fight Henley? Will he stay where he is in Middlesex? Personally, I would sit in a red wall seat. He's loved up there, the Brexit constituencies. I would go for a good safe seat in the north where he's appreciated and where people trusted him. As part of the Vote Leave campaign, the referendum, what we were seeing is die-hard in the wall Labour voters voting for Brexit. But subconsciously, they were voting for Boris, and he broke down those barriers, something that no Conservative leader has done since Maggie Thatcher, when she was winning her big majorities. Boris won the biggest majority since 1987, 43% of the popular vote. You know, if the Conservative Party was a business, I'd be offering Boris a job tomorrow. Well, on that note, Peter Credis, Lord Credis of Shoreditch, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Peter Credis, thank you. And that's all for this week's Chopper's Politics Podcast listeners. Thank you to my guests, Sebastian Payne, Mel Stride MP and Lord Credis of Shoreditch. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, whom without them, well, I'd just be talking to myself in an empty pub. And most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. For more insights into the wonderful world of Westminster, please do sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. It's free and it arrives straight into your email inbox every weekday. The link for that will be in the show notes this episode. And don't forget to sign up to my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip Column out online every Friday at 7pm and in Saturday's copy of the Daily Telegraph. And as always, please do buy a copy of the Telegraph if you can, where you can. Until next time, though, cheerio! Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.